The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal business tax or investment advice or be used to evaluate any investment or security and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com disclosures. Welcome to 16 Minutes, our show on the A16Z podcast network, where we talk about tech trends that are dominating news headlines, industry buzz, and where we are in the long arc of innovation. Today's episode actually features a look back at the GameStop saga, the stock market drama that some headlines described as a David and Goliath battle that, quote, upended Wall Street. For quick basic context, here's what happened. A group of Reddit users mass purchased and drove up prices of stock in the video game retailer GameStop, forcing short sellers, including hedge funds and institutional investors, to back out in a short squeeze, pushing prices even higher. But beyond the news, this also portended other broader trends, including redefining the power of retail investors, the phenomenon of meme stocks, and more. So in this episode, which is from a conversation that originally took place live on Clubhouse, and which, by the way, can also be found on the A16Z live feed, A16Z co-founder Mark Andreessen talks to Ken Griffin, founder and CEO of the hedge fund Citadel, which was a key player in GameStop as both a market maker and investor. You'll also hear A16Z general partner and fintech expert Alex Rampell join later in the conversation. Griffin also just purchased in a Sotheby's auction a little over two weeks ago, one of the original copies of the US Constitution, an auction in which a decentralized autonomous organization called Constitution Dow also bid on buying it in Ethereum. They touch briefly on this at the very end. Now onto the conversation. So let's dive right into GameStop because GameStop was a little while ago. So I'm going to just do a quick, I got, there's a little blurb here on Wikipedia. And I just start by saying I don't represent, <laughs> by no means do I represent what's on Wikipedia as the truth, but rather just sort of as an expression of kind of the gestalt of the commentary, you know, especially around that time. And just to kind of refresh people who uh, haven't have kind of fuzzed out on the details. So January 25th, it was announced that Griffin Citadel would invest $2 billion into Melvin Capital, which was the hedge fund that had suffered losses more than 30% on its short positions, particularly on GameStop. On January 28th, Robinhood, an electronic trading platform favored by many traders involved in buying game stock, stock, stocks and options, which, by the way, were, you know, my firm's involved in, um, abruptly announced that it would halt all purchases of GameStop securities except to cover shorts and would only allow those securities to be sold if already held but not sold short. So in other words, you know, Robinhood cut off basically the ability for the retail traders who were, who were torturing GameStop and Melvin Capital at the time from being able to trade. The price of GameStop stock declined steeply shortly thereafter. Because Robinhood receives a substantial portion of its revenue through a payment for order flow relationship with Citadel Securities, LLC, many commentators criticize the potential for a conflict of interest where the same entity plays the role of market maker and also participates in the market that it makes. And of course, in this case, also was a, a major investor in the, in, the, in the hedge fund on the other side of the GameStop uh, uh, situation. So, you know, just more generally, I would love to hear, and I know everybody would, you know, kind of from your perspective, like what happened? Like, what is the true story of what happened during that period? So in broad strokes, Melvin Capital was short a variety of stocks that became of interest to rather savvy and sophisticated retail investors who realized that the amount of stocks short was just disproportionately large relative to average daily trading. And these retail investors realizing that there were these unduly sized short positions in the marketplace started to buy these stocks that caused the hedge funds that were short these stocks to start to incur losses. And you know, when firms are losing money, they almost reflexively start to cut their own risk. So in this case, they start to cover their shorts. And you end up in this reflexive pattern that as retail is buying the stock, pushing it higher, 
the hedge funds that are short are covering their shorts, pushing the same stock price higher. And this this virtuous circle becomes incredibly painful for the hedge fund managers that are short the securities of interest. And we saw this playing out in the marketplace. And on the day that we invested in in Melvin, we thought that this had run its course. In fact, it was very clear in the morning of the day that we made the investment that this short squeeze was apparently dying down. And we invested money into, into Melvin to take advantage of the fact that a number of their shorts had become very inflated in price, and we expected those prices to revert in due course, and we'd have made a successful investment. At that moment, the world changed. We had the social media landscape with some very important influencers really lit up on the story of GameStop as being a stock to get long and and to ride to the moon. Melvin continued to cover their short very aggressively over probably the next 48 hours, give or take. I can't remember the exact timing of this. Now, ironically, I'm almost certain that Melvin had covered their entire short before the 28th. Mm-hmm. In fact, they, they put out a press release. and The press release would give the exact timing of it. I, I don't recall that off the back of my hand. But I'm pretty certain that by the time that Robinhood stopped trading on the 28th, Melvin had already covered their short and moved on. And, and basically just taking the taking the losses would be the way to think about that, right? Yeah, they they taken their loss and they they moved on. I mean, part of what good risk managers do is is when they're wrong and they can't understand what's taking place in the marketplace, they take it on the chin, they take their loss, and they move on. Now, Robinhood had a, a distinctly different problem than Melvin had. They had a problem of too much success. Robinhood had opened accounts with millions of retail investors who, seeing this price dynamic playing out in GameStop, seeing some of the really important influencers in financial markets advocating the purchase of GameStop, we saw an absolute deluge of retail buyers of GameStop unlike anything I think the markets have ever seen before. The problem that's created for Robinhood is this very concentrated position of buying required them to post good faith margin with the clearinghouse that everybody on Wall Street uses. And I believe that that good faith collateral requirement was order of magnitude $3 billion of cash. And Robinhood simply didn't have $3 billion of shareholders' equity to draw on to post that margin. And so because of their incredible success, they needed to restrict trading at that very moment in time where I'm certain they would have wanted to continue to trade to gather the revenues associated with trading, but they couldn't because they had to let some of those purchases work their way through the settlement cycle to release the demands for cash collateral. Mm -hmm. And of course, as you know, Robinhood was out trying to raise capital at that moment in time to generate more cash to give them the flexibility to make the margin calls that they had to make. You know, there's a couple of kind of claims that have, you know, kind of went viral around that time that I think, you know, probably are still, or, you know, kind of still circulated around. You know, so, so this idea that on the one hand, you've got this relationship with Melvin Capital, where you're now a big investor. Uh, you know, on the other hand, you've got this relationship with Robinhood, 
you know, where they get a lot of their revenue from, from, uh, for payment for order flows through your uh, market maker. Um, and so there, there's, there's this perception developed that you're kind of sitting in the middle of this web and kind of pulling strings. And then there's this kind of, you know, shadowy consortium or whatever they, they call it in the background. And they're issuing this, these, this overnight demand for, for money. And that's, you know, presumably like somehow rigged up by wall street. So like, what, what was your reaction to kind of finding yourself in the spotlight on that kind of thing? And how do you kind of process through trying to explain to people what, what, what the reality of the situation was? Well, I have to say that, that processing conspiracy theories is not one of our core competencies. So we were a bit slow out of the gate to to dispute this this ridiculous set of claims, just given like we don't find ourselves in the middle of conspiracy theories very often. So as a, as a large market maker, in fact, the largest market maker in the market in late January in GameStop, in AMC, in the other meme stocks, you know, we were very interested in seeing the continuation of trading both buys and sells. One-way flow is a really difficult proposition for a market maker. So if people keep selling you stock, you keep accumulating inventory. What are you going to do? Mm-hmm. You make your money as a market maker from the bid-ask spread of buying and selling, getting into and out of a security over the course of a day. So we, as a, as a market maker, were the largest market maker in this, in this period in late January because of our operational capacity to take on the operational risk capital demands that were inherent in this incredible increase in participation by retail investors. So in contrast to Robinhood, we had the financial strength to meet our collateral calls. We had the operational bandwidth to meet the demands of the marketplace on our business. And then with respect to Melvin, their short in GameStop was, to the best of my knowledge, like already gone or, or virtually gone. It wasn't even in our minds on the day of the 28th. And so the fact that people made that connection ex post was certainly not a connection that I'd made a priori. Right. So you weren't sitting there thinking we have to optimize the value of this investment we just made in Melvin Capital. No. And then two things that are just something I, I knew intellectually but didn't realize kind of emotionally or viscerally until I saw it happen, which is you can't if if you are short a stock, you know, if you're a fund and you're short a stock, you cannot and and can't correct me if this is wrong, you can't close out that short without delivering that stock which is to say like i can't if i'm short and i and i offer you a hundred dollars to close out the position five hundred dollars to close the position a thousand dollars to close out the position ten thousand dollars to close out the position i can't close out the position without the actual share of stock because basically there you know there's in theory potentially a limited downside if the, if the stock keeps rising is, is that technically true for 99.99 percent of the situations <laughs> of which this was one of that 99.99 you had to buy the actual shares back if you were short and trying to cover your short. So for all intents and purposes, one should view if somebody's short a stock, they're going to have to one day buy those shares back in the marketplace as a regular way trade. What's, by the way, just out of curiosity, what's the 0.01% exception? You know, I sometimes professionals over the years, I've seen people willing to settle a short for cash in lieu. But that's almost always the context of things like tender offers for a company. Okay. Right. So if a company's being bought for stock, or sorry, for cash, let's call it, you know, General Electric's going to buy a company, they're going to pay $24 a share. Once the tender closes, if you were short that stock, since the tender's closed, the company's been bought, you can, under those circumstances, settle your liability for cash. Yeah, but, but and what you're describing is, is a particular kind of bounded situation with presumably minimal risk. In contrast, yes, the, to, the, the shares are gone, the company's been bought, and how do you how do you wrap up that contractual right. situation amongst the parties? 
But if, if there's unlimited potential future downside, you can't get a counterparty uh, who won't settle, who will, who will trade, who will settle you out for, uh, for anything short of the actual stock. If, if one of the challenges that you have as a short seller is your risk is unbounded. That's why when, when people are constructing portfolios of longs and shorts, their short positions tend to be much smaller than their long positions on a relative basis because the risk on the short side is unbounded in comparison to the risk on the long side positions. And then that, that leads to the second thing, which um, the GameStop stock price, uh, you know, we're sitting here now, what, almost a year later, and it's still um, the market cap, the, the stock price is still $179 a share, which is, you know, is up a thousand percent from uh, from a year ago. And the, the market cap of the company is, is almost $14 billion. And if you just look, if you look at the chart, it's, it's not quite, you know, it's, it's not at the all time high that it got during the, the truly crazy period, but like, it's not that far off. It kind of peaked out at over 300 and it's still at 179. It certainly hasn't fallen back to where it started. The, you know, the suggestion I think that that price might be telling us is there are still funds out there that are short that haven't been able to buy back and the Reddit, the Reddit horde is still torturing them. Or, or maybe, the, maybe the company's, by the way, much better, right, is, is the other possibility. But like, are you surprised that that stock has held up? Because I, I think a lot of, you know, the commentary at the time was obviously this thing is going back to, you know, near zero. Well, I, you know, I think it's, it's an incredibly complicated situation. First of all, the, the management team of the company did a great job of buying back its own stock, you know, ballpark two years ago at much, much lower prices. The company bet on its own future and bought back a, share, a fair number of shares, I, I think it was in the single dollars per share back, you know, roughly two years ago. And that's, that's <laughs> in rough strokes. I'm not, a, I'm not a GameStop expert per se, but my members serves me right. That's what they did about two years ago. And then there's been a, you know, the rise of a significant new investor, the founder of Chewy, <laughs> and he has an incredible reputation as being an entrepreneur yep. and of really understanding how to connect with the consumer in a profound way in an e-commerce environment. And if somebody's going to figure out how to, how to turn GameStop into a successful e-commerce-based platform, he's behind the list of people to do it. And that's, that's the question. Can they pivot from, from, a, from a huge footprint of stores around the world? with a relatively high cost of distribution to an e-commerce-led company with a broader mandate that's able to engage the consumer in a profoundly different way. And the market price today reflects people's views on, on that very same question. Yeah. The, the current short position in the stock is, is actually quite trivial compared to what it was just a year and change ago. Mm -hmm. Virtually all the short players are, are long since gone from this name. They've given up trying to understand how to price GameStop with, with uh, the founder of Chewy at the helm. Yeah. If you look at, by the way, if you look at the five-year chart, it, it looks, pardon the, pardon the metaphor, it, it, it literally looks like a corpse that suddenly came back to life. It's just this flat sag for like four years. And then there's this crazy spike, you know, during the, during the Reddit drama. And then there's this kind of choppy, but like fundamentally, as you said, kind of, you know, this, this kind of new, this kind of new normal, at least for the last, like whatever, nine months. Yeah. The question here is I play my Xbox. Yep. I just got called duty vantage. I downloaded it. I didn't walk into a store. Well, I mean, so that, that was the that was the presumption right prior to the Reddit prior to the Reddit the Reddit guys figuring out the you know the the, the short situation right that was the presumption right this, this, that was, was the short. presumption the presumption was right. the world was going to go to digital downloads so fast that GameStop would not be able to change its cost structure quickly enough to adapt to that brave new world and they were going to meet the same fate as Blockbuster and so but that's the question the, is is will yeah. you know will the management team at at GameStop find ways to connect the consumer that are different than what they were doing three or four years ago that create value for consumers for which they get paid to do.
Well, the, well, the reason I brought this up, the five-year chart, is it goes to the point you made, which I just want to explore one more one, one more level, which is this is a situation, like you can tell a very different story here. And the story basically is they had this, you know, they, they, they were in trouble. Then they had this exogenous event caused by, you know, the mechanics of the, of the stock market. And then to your point, they have seized, in you know, the best case scenario, they've seized on the exogenous event to now construct a better future for themselves. Oh, um, no doubt. No doubt. And right. they, raised, they raised a tremendous amount of capital to create a war chest that gives them the flexibility to pursue a variety of different business strategies. And so it's like speculation creating reality, like potentially in a, in a really positive way. So that will, that the markets will judge that in retrospect, right. where the people that bought GameStop stock from the company over the course of the last year, brilliant or not. And we'll find out based upon the success, the, the failures or success the merits of where GameStop takes their business. Okay, Larry, and by the way, see. that's yeah. what makes America's capital markets work. Differences right. of opinion drive our capital markets. Uh, just remember, a few months ago, Hertz was left for dead in the middle of the pandemic. Yep. They were in bankruptcy, and, and they went to raise money in the stock market. And the SEC said, "You can't do it." An offering, you're you're bankrupt, right? And now Hertz is this incredible success story. So I think we have but, to all have some level of. Um, humility about our ability to forecast how any given company is going to progress, prosper, or fail. Well, I think, I think that's one of the great things here is that it turns out retail is very smart. Sometimes called retail dumb money, but actually, again, I mean, smart on Tesla, smart paradoxically on something like Hertz, which was bankrupt, um, and potentially smart on many of these others. One of my favorite things is if you Google Apple IPO Massachusetts, there's an article right. in the Wall Street Journal about how the state of Massachusetts, to protect the general public, banned their participation in the I- Apple IPO, which is, of course, now the biggest company in the entire world. So it, it turns out sometimes retail investors are smart. And uh, you know, I-, I would argue that right now it's a better time to be a retail investor than ever before. I, you know, I, I think it's always important to remember that that a number of your retail investors are they're intrinsically optimists, and yep. when they see a great product run and a, and a company run by an inspired CEO, they're willing to put their money on that. They're willing to believe in the future of America. They're willing to believe in the Tesla story. Okay, look, I would love to keep going. We have, you know, we could go, we could go for hours on this, but uh, we're we're coming close again to the end of your time. So I wanted to um, also I wanted to ask you about the other thing you've been in the headlines for recently in our world as well as more generally, which is uh, your purchase of the U.S. Constitution and your competition and your uh, your uh, your just very narrow, I think, trouncing, but your trouncing of the uh, of the Constitution Dow uh, Web three project that, that that got a lot of attention, uh, you know, a consortium of, of Web three crypto people that were trying to buy the same uh, the same, uh, constitution. So maybe tell us, tell us a little bit about that. How, how, how did that go down from your perspective? I, I actually saw it several weeks before the auction. And it's one of those moments I, I walked out of Sotheby's and told a friend, I'm like, I'm going to buy that yeah. because to own such a, an important part of, of the history of America and really the, the, just the profound wisdom of the words transcribed on that paper by the thought leaders of our nation. That was truly important to me. And then nothing like seeing the Constitution Dow raise just a mind-blowing amount of money in, in a few days in front of the auction. What a statement about community. I mean, I am blown away by the passion of the community to come together to, to share this document with our country. And just as I will share this document with our country, I was really impressed to see so many Americans willing to put up money to make that happen as a reality. And so the, the night of the auction, 
you know, what, what I've learned over the years in auctions, simply the person willing to pay the most wins. There's no grandeur in being the winner at the auction. You're just willing to pay more. I was fortunate enough to, to have the financial resources to acquire the Constitution. And as you're well aware, I've already committed to lending it to Crystal Bridges, where it will be shared with, hopefully over the next few years, millions of Americans. And Crystal Bridges is a really special place. It touches touches the Midwest in a profound way. It touches the South in a profound way. A huge number of the people that go to Crystal Bridges have never set foot into an art or history museum before in their lives. And to really share the American vision with so many people, I hope is an inspiration to our youth about the greatness of our country, about the greatness of our founding fathers. And we didn't get everything right, but we changed the world and will inspire people to pursue both public service and to pursue how can they make America better. That's fantastic. That's great. So I can't think of a better way to end the conversation, and we're right at six. So Ken, want to thank you for your time and, and for, uh, for uh, getting into these, uh, these exciting topics with us, and, and we've, we've really enjoyed having you. What a pleasure. Great to be with both of you tonight. And thank you, everybody in the audience for joining us, and we will be back, um, we will be back soon.